out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Esau. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Snuff, because I recently spoke to their drummer, vocalist, songwriter. It's the one and only Duncan Redmonds to find out more about life, love and poetry and much, much more. As you can imagine, they have a new album coming out, which is in June 2023, which is titled Come and Have a Go If You Think You're Rachmaninoff. Fantastic title. Um, Nine tracks. These are acoustic versions of their songs and they are absolutely stunning, as you'll find out in this interview. And they have got a live date as well, which is on the 11th of June. This is going to be live and also online. It's going to be starting at 3.30 showtime. I will give you the link in the notes below. But um, so, yes, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interest and a casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that is the new album. And... um, I'm mesmerised by it, basically. So we talk about that for a bit and then various other bits and pieces within this. Um, And I was talking about the lyrical content and the sort of the combination of romantic melancholia, which um, I sort of felt listening to this record and the lyrics. And this was Duncan's response. Duncan, it's over to you. Okay, if you say so. Yes, I kind of write about what is going on. So surely every life has a bit of romantic melancholia in it i suppose yes well i, I think with a lot of the lyrics i must admit there's a couple of songs which i've played kind of on repeat chalice of lunacy which is which is a classic can you remember where that one was kind of the, the moment you re- wrote that song by the way yes i remember exactly it was in norway and we were doing a um i was with billy no mates and we were doing a benefit gig for buddha um, an old punk that had been, he was used to, he was involved with the Blitz, um, and he died, um, sadly. Um, so there was a big memorial gig for him, right? Um, and it was Billy No Mates and Leatherface were playing, and "Drink Freely from the Chalice of Lunacy" comes from Dickie Hammond. Um, he was standing there. Well, drink did for him in the end, sadly, but he was standing there with a litre of vodka in his see-through glass and he was sharing it with everyone and saying that was his thing drink freely from the chalice of lunacy um so it came from that it was about dicky but also um alcohol um uh, yeah that's where it came from it came yes. from came from Norway. It was a very emotional thing watching Dickie die. It's true. Trying to tell him that I loved him and Dickie, you're dying, we need you. It didn't help, but at least I said it. Yeah. And did you, I mean, because there's lovely, I mean, there's some really nice references on, you know, the plane, Donald Duck, Scooby-Doo. I mean, were these were these all written kind of at the same time or did you rework the lyrics at all later? Um, it was a kind of attempt to put comedy in there, shall I say? Um, Donald Duck, what's Donald Duck doing on a plane? He can fly, you know what I mean? <laughs> so it's like, it doesn't make sense, but it's, it was a kind of attempt to make it lighthearted yes. so that people could take it on a lighthearted level rather than just going, this is really sad. 
you've got to be able to laugh at them things or smile at them things in a way, I think. Yeah, well, absolutely. Scooby-Doo, Cockney rhyming slang, Scooby-Doo, ain't got a Scooby, haven't got a clue. So I haven't got a clue. It was an attempt to make it light-hearted, make, make, make light of a dark subject, I guess. Yes, and um, I mean childhood references of cartoon characters. But it had that nice surreal feeling, which is sometimes what you need in life to uh, take yourself out of the moment to um, try and have a bit of distance from some emotional drag or heaviness. Yeah, I'd, yeah. somehow you've got to be able to deal with it somehow. And if you can deal with a little smile in the end, then what else can you do? Yes. It's... Yeah, I guess. What what else can I say? It was a because the it's album, a dark song, really. It's, it's very dark, but it's people can listen to it on one level and not know what it's about, and another level just find it. What's yes. he talking about? It's well, I'll, 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 I'll have to listen to it again. But I, I suppose that's the song on the album that really, you know, like I love more than anything. But then you follow it up. Okay. Nick's Motown, which is again, this is, but this is where I kind of reference that or, or mentioned, you know, romantic melancholy, because this is all about, you know, the, the imagery of, you know, you mentioned arms around me, heartbeat next to mine, hand in mine, you know, touch your heart. So that, so what was, where, where would, where did this kind of song come from? Um, it's kind of weird. If I sometimes, if I explain songs, it upsets people because they've made their own. Yes, view this is true. What the song is, and it's a love song, and and when I when we do it live, I'll normally say something along like, "This one's for the lovers out there," but it actually came from being off on tour and coming back and hugging my kids. It's sort of came from that. It yes. was um, um, obviously love's in there, but the inspiration was coming back and hugging my kids again as as little kids. Um, but people see it as a sexual thing. They will naturally go, oh, this is a lovely sexual thing. So if I explain to people, it's actually about my daughter and daughters, people go, ooh, uh, ooh, I thought it was a sexual thing, and it's not. But it is, it's obviously not sexual about me and my daughters, but it can no. be taken on that level. Yes. And that's well, that's fine. That's fine. It, it's So I maybe can... now I'm explaining this, some people are going to be going, oh, no, it's about his daughters going off on tour. I thought it was about being in love with someone, which is about being in love with someone. But I think for me, I suppose because the album's so acoustic-driven and, you know, with the guitar and the harmonica occasionally it has a it actually feels quite like a one of those neil young albums at times that he's done where it is kind of very reflective so i wouldn't i think it's kind of people suddenly appreciating what we have and sometimes you know looking at what we should have probably focused on a bit more and the and the things that really mattered when we had that chance that you know that moment's gone so i know neil young did a really amazing album in the i think eight, eight 90s um which was kind of one of his follow-ups to harvest or something and i suppose in a way when i heard that song it felt like where you sort of 
you sort of remember certain people in your life and you sort of wished you could still have that moment of, as you said, in the you know, arms around mine, heartbeat next to mine. So it had that more of a, for me, a feeling, but it makes sense that you talk about your children because obviously, you know, I was thinking you're going to say you're, you know, because I'm very sim- sentimental about our cats. So, you know, sometimes they're the, you know, they're the things that matter most in, in life because they understand me more than anybody. There it is. Um, I would say, yeah, I do like Neil Young. I'm not a massive, I don't know all of his songs, but I was definitely, there's a lot of Neil Young songs that I like. Um, yes. I, I think if you start dealing with the emotional stuff, people recognise it, even if they don't quite connect exactly what you're talking about. Everyone has those feelings, so they connect in their own way. Um, I think it's, a good release for people it's a therapeutic thing so um what can i say yeah it, it's mm, a release for people yeah even if i mean i always remember <laughs> listening to rod stewart um as a teenager hearing bits and bobs and i'd imagine my own view on it um and i didn't to me, it didn't actually matter that it wasn't, I was still a virgin. I'd never had sex, but at the same time, it was like I was connecting with what he was saying, even though it, I didn't really have a clue what he was saying. I made my own version in my head. So if you can do that and put someone in a position where they can release some of their emotions or identify with it, even if it's not exactly the same, it's not a bad thing. I think it, you can connect on different levels. Yes, absolutely. And and you know, I suppose when I was growing up, you know, one of my most influential albums, mainly because my parents, you know, we were from a very working class family, so we didn't have many possessions when we were growing up. And I, my parents, when they got together in the fifties, say they were they sold everything. They were the kind of generation that never had any debt, so they would work, buy something, and they sold. You know, my dad sold his record player, and then in the seventies, there was a, a record player appeared in a couple of records, and one being the Carpenters, which I played. I just loved the lyrics, and though I couldn't relate, I mean, I was probably ten. No, I was probably younger. You know, it was all that stuff about kind of emotions and relationships and alienation. Obviously. You know, Karen, whoever wrote those songs, they weren't my experiences because I was very young. But I kind of there was something about the sentiment of those lyrics that that resonated with me in a way that you probably write the write these songs and lyrics and they'll resonate people, but they'll have their own stories, you know, because I think going back to Chalice of No, uh, Nick's Motown, I sort of pictured myself with my partner. um, Actually, Nick Motown. As in stolen Nick, <laughs> but anyway, yeah, go on. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I just pictured you know two people on the two people on a beat on a, walking into a sunset on a beach. You know, it, that was my kind of imagery of that song. That's that's because it had that kind of feeling of watching the sunset and that kind of sense of kind of you know aging and wisdom and sort of reflection as well. So I think that's where we read into lyrics that that are quite different to the person who wrote the the song. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. And I would say on one level it's about the kids, but also I try and write songs on and not make it exact. Make it so that people can make their own interpretation. Um, the, the more levels you can put into a song, the better. So it doesn't have to be directly ex- describing it. it. It can People can put their own view on it and identify yes. like I did with Rod Stewart even though I had no idea what he was talking about it 
I identified with it and and that that made sense to me in my own way. So um what was I gonna say? This so yeah, on one level it was about it was the inspiration was with my kids. I remember sitting there playing it to my eldest daughter when she was a little baby, well I'd say baby, two or three year old. Um as a little lullaby getting her to sleep but it could also be i would also put in there a link that yes old relationships will could be linked on to that so i don't know um yeah trying to draw people into a song and let yes. them enjoy it for whatever reason they find Absolutely. So when you when you went to started the, pro, the to put this release together, had you had it in your mind that there were going to be nine tracks and it was going to be acoustic, unlike you know previous records? Where how did that sort of come about that process? Um, well, it came about um, because we went in to record an album of Snuff Loud, um, and we were extremely well rehearsed, um, and we'd finished in like. Uh, the three days I think we'd finished and we'd booked 10 days to fully record it and mix it. So we were kind of had this spare time that we were thinking, right, what are we going to do? Um, I've done an acoustic um, CD many years ago as a kind of a tour EP for Japan, which was great fun. I enjoyed it. And also um, manager Jim, he kept pushing, like, try some acoustic, try some acoustic. People can hear your voice. People can tell the lyrics. People can understand. And it's like, well, yeah, but the bread and butter is doing the loud stuff, doing the loud gigs. So really, it came out of spare time. We had this time left and went, right, what can we do? Let's do some acoustic. Let's just see what works. So we very quickly on the spot just went through lots of tracks trying to work out which ones would work because not all tracks work acoustic no um some of them in snuff's case some of the shouty punk stuff just doesn't work acoustic it wouldn't fit at all but then some of it does so we we went through i think 17 tracks we put down just as backing tracks i just got a click up played a track and think will this work then me and Lars would have a little backwards and forwards. Is that working? Um, so 10 of them worked. Well, 10 of them shone through, and the other seven were like, mm, they're not quite working. Um, so it, it came from that. We pieced it together on the spot pretty much. It was like, right, okay, that could do with a bit of fiddle. That could do with a bit of harmonica. That could do with cello. Um, so we built it like that. It, was, right. it wasn't It wasn't anticipated. It came out of oh we got this time that's what we how we're going to use it let's do this so they had so that none of them had been written as acoustic songs originally apart from perhaps no no i've i've never written an acoustic song it's always been loud songs um and then looked back with these and gone right that will work acoustic because like I said, I tried it with an, a tour EP I did a long time ago. And I kind of went through loads of songs. Right. Snuff songs, Billy No Mate songs, whatever songs, what works, what doesn't. And some work, some don't. It's 
you can't quite tell what's going to work and what won't. You could imagine that will definitely work acoustic. And then you try it and go, mm, oh, it doesn't. And vice versa, something like yeah. that. That might not work acoustic, but if we do, oh, if we do it like this, that will work. Oh, that's nice. So it kind of blossomed in the studio. It was a studio thing, really. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't intended beforehand. It. It was a lucky, happy accident. It's it, it's kind of interesting because I know I was obsessed with David Bowie, so he finished his his life and career on Black Star, and obviously that kind of works well as a, almost a. As a as a final bit, and and I mean this this also has a, a sort of sense of uh, it feels like very well um, put together in this in in being he says looking at the track listed yeah it sort of it runs beautifully each you know song runs from one to the other finish you know it starts with all you need and it finishes with take me home and it's got a nice kind of arc you know the the the, the uh, the order of the tracks all seem to sort of run from one to another. So that seems to be, you know, you must have felt really chuffed when you put that together and went, yes, they, these are all, all fit to be together beautifully. I did feel I was well chuffed with how it all, how it all turned out, definitely. Um, when it comes to the running order, um, it was actually the final running order was sorted out by Ollie, the trombonist. Um, I tend to get to a point of go right that's the creative stuff finished you sort it out someone else sort it out that's i've done my bit so i'd let ollie take credit for that right um, but yes no it, it, it it's very important when you're putting an album together or a live set that one song runs into the other and makes sense against the one before it so there's no point if it was a live snuff set there's no point in doing five belting thrashers where I'm screaming about how I hate the world or you know politics or blah 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 it's got a, it plays from the one before it whatever's come before will make the next song um well set the ground for the next song yes so well, it's, it's interesting because in the 80s there was a couple of bands I was obsessed with including one from Minneapolis Huskadoo which we loved intensely I loved Huskadoo yeah <laughs> not so at they, first though but I did. So I remember hearing Land Speed Record. Was that the first one? I get confused. Possibly, yeah. I get a bit confused. <laughs> um, which was fully fresh, screamy, shouty. <clears throat> At first, I was kind of against it. I didn't. Um, we used to have a mate called Paul Lyon who'd come round, and he was American punk fanatic. So he would bring stuff for me. I'd heard the Ramones and Dead Kennedys probably some others but not many and he would bring stuff round and at first I didn't really like Huskadoo it was like mm. and then I think I heard Green Eyes right yeah might have been Green Eyes or maybe it was um uh Pink Turns to Blue is that the right title yeah so the more Grant Hart melodic ones got me first and then it was then it was like oh, okay I'm getting this now I'm getting it, it wasn't an instant this band is amazing. Um, it it was a slow burner, and it yes. was, oh right, okay, I'm getting it now. I'm getting it now. Because Candy um, Apple Grey has a couple of really stunning acoustic songs from Bob Mould on it, and I suppose when and then they did Warehouse, which was a bit of a t it's got a tinny sound to it. But then when your album came out, and I was thinking of your lyrics, because even in the early days, you have songs like Now You Don't Remember, Not Listening. Win some, lose some, pass me by, keep the beat. I mean, I suddenly went, oh, this is kind of because they had split up. And obviously then you came along in the 
afterwards and when I, I heard that album and, and John Peel playing it I thought oh this is kind of um, picking up the baton in a way so that's why I thought lyrically and you know with the great thing with the mix with your stuff is that you can hear your lyrics which I've always been keen on people always say that it's been a long-running theme try and enunciate I mean going <laughs> it's and I did try it once and it just sounds when you're singing a loud volume it's not the same as talking. It, it's a different process. It, it's very hard to enunciate. You get all the D's and the T's don't really work. So I did try it. So it's been a recurring thing. Enunciate, enunciate. And I did try it on a few songs. It sounds absolutely terrible. It sounds horrible when it's belted out. Because it's a different thing. Um, one example I heard was... Um, the Clash first album demo. Um, I didn't actually hear it, but um, um, a friend was talking about it recently, saying they heard the original demos where the the producer had said, "Can you enunciate?" And they they're a massive Clash fan, and they'd heard it and went, "It's not the Clash," because right. Joe Strummer's all over the place. Um, so it is a tricky thing, but people do like to hear the lyrics. I yeah. understand that, but to actually scream when you're at the top of your range going ah, ah, ah. it's not the same as enunciating when you're talking it, it's and it just doesn't feel natural to me so with the acoustic people can hear that um so a lot of people like that yes but for, and i understand that but for a loud thing it doesn't really work it just feels really uncomfortable and it, it doesn't sound good to me it's so I guess if people want to hear the lyrics, and of course I like that, um, acoustic would make more sense in that yes. sense. But but all, but from that, you know, your your first album, you, you know, I thought lyrics came through quite clearly. So that's why, you know, because okay. you, were, you you were sort of doing the themes, that I suppose, that Bob Mould and Grant Hart did to a large extent, especially you know about relationships and rejection and uh, yeah. things like that. It, it it sort of that's why I thought that it had a slightly similar vibe and and sort of taken the baton almost from Husker. Yeah, do. I'd also say that some of that comes from the likes of the Buzzcocks and the Undertones. They were two big passions of mine, um, and the Buzzcocks were a punk band, but it was all about emotions and love songs not all of it but most of it they were <laughs> ever fallen in love with someone it was it was a different thing it wasn't i hate you and you hate me it was no. like oh is it is a well-crafted song yes with with strong emotional lyrics so yes um husker do definitely an influence but also i'd go back to yeah buzzcocks undertones it was an emotional thing and for me I listen to a lot of soul music. So, um, well, mob music, soul music, Northern Soul, Motown. And that's all about that. It's all about the emotions and connecting with, you broke my heart, I broke your heart, sorry, don't leave me, I'm going to leave you. All of all of those emotional <laughs> things. Yes. Which is... Um, which is what we all feel. I mean, I could stand there and shout about how I hate the government all day, but... You don't need that all the way through a gig. You need a little burst of it or whatever, but <laughs> what was your... that connects with your heart. Yes, because my my sort of early musical moment in life was the sort of early seventies of the sort of the glam world of Sweet and Slade and T Rex. But yeah, Gary, that was me as well. Yeah, and Gary Glitter. 
but but David Bowie was my first single and first love with Space Oddity that had the B-side of Changes and Velvet Goldmine. So what was your kind of musical awakening? What happened that that you saw or or heard something that kind of blew your mind? Um I'm kind of with you on the uh, the the uh, glam era that was my thing running home from Cubs so I could get to hear Top of the Pops. I'd always miss the first song because I couldn't get there quick enough but I wanted to see the suite. I wanted Boring Blitz. I wanted, um, my brother was Slade, so he would have the Slade, and I liked Slade as well. Yes. But my thing was the suite. But before that, it would be listening through my mum and dad's records. Um, there'd be a mixture of stuff. Classical jazz. I remember Perdido by Duke Ellington. Played that over and over again. Just sounded brilliant. Um, folk music, hearing little bits of folk, Morris dancing. I still love it, but it's not cool to everyone else, but it's cool to me. I love it. it. It's, it's making um, a comeback. I had a friend, I've got a friend who's a Morris dancer in Norwich and yeah, they're, they're doing well. Excellent. Doing... <laughs> Excellent. All power to them. That's what I say. Absolutely. People are embarrassed about it. I'm, I'm not. It's like, it's a, it's a laugh. It's a bit of fun. And the tunes are tunes that have lasted a long time because they're tunes that stick in people's heads. Yes, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'd say that, a bit of folk music. I'd also re- remember as a tiny little kid being on holiday. Me mum and dad took us on some lovely holidays, went up to Scotland, the Orkneys. I remember going into a, it was like, a, I guess looking back, it was a kind of a touristy thing, but it was a, a brock or a house, whatever the correct term, you know, traditional old, old Orkney house. And they were describing stuff. And then a fiddler came out and played some Orkney, Orkney fiddle. It was just like, wow, what's this? <laughs> this is amazing. How this is magic. It, it, it's just it, music was always there. I would always I was always into the music, always from primary mm. school to now. It, it's a passion, absolute passion. And how did the drums appear in your life? I know we listened to Cozy Powell, Powell doing Dance with the Devil, but um, drummers in those days on Top of the Pops would always do their little drumstick thing, but mostly people got a guitar, didn't they? Um, I got a, I've started playing drums and guitar roughly the same time. I was passionate about the drums. I always remember that. From primary school again, there would be, we'd have music lessons. We'd have country dancing as well. Yes. That's another thing. So all these, you know, the muffin man there, tunes that would just stick and we'd we'd do country dancing and Claire Tyson chose me and I was the happiest boy in the school for a dance, whatever. Um so and then we'd have music lessons and they'd bring out percussion instruments and I would always just complete and utter beeline for the snare drum first off. It's like, no, I'm having that, I'm having that. So I was always passionate about that. Um I was the cliche when my mum and dad would go out shopping on Saturday, I'd get all the pots and pans out um, and play with wooden spoons. I worked out that it had to be a three-ply cling film on the mixing bowls. Right. Otherwise, otherwise your your wooden spoon would go through it. So they'd come back and I'd in the kitchen, I'd, I'd be all looking <laughs> different size mixing bowls and, tin lids and whatever the bass drum was just the floor because it was a hollow floor but they saw i was passionate about that and yes. my dad encouraged it as well he saw that and it was like okay 
and I got a snare drum. I think I was 11 or 12, maybe. That was just amazing. Oh, that was just like, wow, wow. I'm on my way now. It was, um, and roughly about the same time, my mum had an old six-string Spanish guitar, and I'd started trying to play that. I think I started with probably Smoke on the Water and Pretty Vacant, just simple stuff. Yes, classic. I was always passionate about that, but the drums, what really hit me was Ian Pace from Deep Purple. Oh, my God. Fantastic. What a phenomenal drummer. Amazing. Crisp. Crisp, but amazing. Just like, wow. Yeah. That was that was inspirational. I was in the. I started with rock and roll. Eddie Cochran, Chuck Berry, a little bit of Elvis, but um, Eddie Cochran and uh, Chuck Berry were my favourites. Yeah. But then when the when I started listening to the rock music, Deep Purple, Ian Pace, Black Sabbath, you know, um, that sort of stuff. But drum wise, Ian Pace, wow. You still when you listen back to some of that stuff, it's like he's so on it. Crisp, tight, brilliant. Yes, well, um, absolutely. Fireball is always my favourite one of Deep Purple. Me too. Well, I could I could reel off loads, but yeah, Fireball is amazing with the doubles. But they haven't mixed the double bass drums, but they haven't mixed it up very loud. But it's double bass drums in there. Yes, which was a you know, ooh, if that had been maybe they've done some remastered stuff. But yes, absolutely. Mix wise, he he was out there. He was. He's still, I don't know, he's still alive, isn't he? He's not dead yet. I think he's alive. Yes. Yeah. yeah. No, if if you see him, tell him him he was a massive influence on me. (laughs) It's funny because I did an interview with um, a guy who produced that track called Fireball, which starts with that kind of weird kind of sound. (laughs) Yes. And he he told me it was like some air air suction thing that they just recorded. And then he played it back and they went, oh, we should use that. So it was like, oh my God, I can't believe. It was just, uh, yeah, I think he went on to record with people like Soft Cell, but his early days as a technician was kind of Deep Purple was one of his first ones. He said, yeah, it was just like literally switching on a sort of uh, air conditioner and it just went, and it's like, okay. oh, it all makes sense. There you go. I just assumed it was some sort of lift or something, that something that someone had, some machine, machinery that someone had pushed, but. Yes, yeah. was, oh, I, could, I could mine that track all the way through. <laughs> yeah. No, I was so I was really pleased. I sort of had that little moment with somebody. I thought, oh, that's good because it had a huge influence on my childhood. You know that song, and um, yes, when a Bl- when a blind man cries, and all those songs which we loved, and uh, Highway Star, which was stunning. So um, yeah, I yes. didn't always get on with the lyrics though. I've got to say that um, they get worse. They get worse as the decades go on. Actually, I've listened to some of the eighties and nineties stuff, and it's like, oh dear, something about backdoor man, which is a bit like, oh dear. That's yeah, not... <laughs> well, it, it was as a teenager, young teenager, twelve, thirteen. It was all like, this is amazing. And then slowly, it was like, really? Hang on a sec. Joe Strummer's talking to me now. If only he was in Deep Purple. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I think but we yeah, all struggled. No, lyrics, it's like, oh, there was always that conscious thing for me. It's like, I don't want to, I'm not going to write that I'm going to rock you, baby, mama. Woo, stuff. All night, all night oh, long. No, no, you're losing <laughs> me now. You lost me. You lost me. Yes, that was. But I can still go back and get nostalgic. Yes, I know. As long as they keep to, um, yeah, they're not good on relate. Heavy metal and relationships were always a bit tricky, weren't they? So when we got to the 79, 80 period, you know, you know, we've had punk and that's getting going downhill. You know, Thatcher gets in. So we have the conservative government rocking for the next 10 years. 
And then sort of the world of indie pop starts in sort of 83. We'd had sort of new Paisley. We had the Blitz Kids and, and the Smiths. What was it like for you then, that period in the early 80s? Where were you? Had you left school by then? Early 80s, I was I just, I moved to London when I was 17. So that was summer of 81. Right. Um, I was, um, I was distancing myself from the rock stuff. I'm going to rock you, mama. Woo. Um, <laughs> and I was, I've been listening to the pistols and the clash and x-ray specs and the punk stuff. It started with my collection was like UFO, deep purple, ACDC, black Sabbath. Um, and then the more towards the back, it's like, Oh, there's that clash album. And there's the, the x-ray specs and the sex pistols. But then those ones came to the front. But that period, I was fully into the um, UK, what is now known as the UK 82 punk, Discharge, GBH, um, Exploited. That that was where I was. I was right. I was into the City Baby attacked by rats. Um, Race Against Time. I remember hearing Race Against Time by GBH, and it was like, Oh, that's me. That's a bit of me because it's got that kind of metal edge to it, and it's not got the the nonsense metal lyrics. At least it's something that's you know, it's it's is something I can relate to in a way. Yes, that's that's where I was, but also soul music, um, Northern soul. That was I remember. I mean, for years, I mean, you mentioned David Bowie. I would say I was a big Bowie fan. My mum used to bring Bowie albums home. It's like, ooh. And on the guitar, I remember seeing, I learned the guitar chords for Ziggy Stardust. And it was like, oh, okay. There's some nice, weird stuff going on in there. I love that. Um, Then I, I did like all the glam stuff. And I still like some of it, but it's it's a, I've got to pick the right ones these days. <laughs> so I've been through that, then the rock, and then it was like, right, the Clash are now talking to me, or the Pistols are now talking to me. Um, at first, I was a little bit, when I heard um, Discharge, that stuff for the first time, I would say, mm, I'm missing the melody, I'm missing the buzzcocks and the undertones and and stiff little fingers, something more, do I like this? And it took, it took a little while, but when I heard, yeah, Race Against Time by GBH, it was like, wow. That's me. That's me. It's it's raucous, loud, fast, metallic, punk, brilliant. I do also remember on the opposite side. Some point in the seventies, um, I mean, I'd run home from Cubs to see Top of the Pops, and you'd get a mixture of, um, you know, it was glam stuff really that I was I wanted, but you'd watch it all anyway because yeah. it was the only it was the only thing you got. It was apart from the top 40 on Sundays, it was like, got to watch all of this. There was the odd kind of soul track. I remember Boogie Nights by Heatwave coming on. I don't know if that'll date what year it was. Probably about and 78, you know. Yes. Oh, something to this. What's this? But then I think it was my Auntie Barbara brought round, I think, a Motown compilation. And I remember going, wow, what's this? What's this? That that triggered it. Um, so it, I've always had kind of a rock and a soul side. 
Yes, well, it's it's interesting because you listen to the Temptations get ready, and you think that's like two and a half minutes of pure energy. Brilliant! It's just yeah. perfect perfection. Yeah. That song, same here. Brilliant. The, them little two minute, two minutes thirty or whatever, however long. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at my box of soul records now, going, yeah, that's I can I can pull it out for you right now. <laughs> um, yes, that was a good so, one. Yeah, no, the Motown stuff. Did you get into Northern Soul? Because I used to love Motown, and then I started hearing Northern Soul, and then getting those compilations. You know, the artists just did one great song, didn't they? And they put them on a compilation. If you bought the single, that would have you know cost about a thousand pound or something. But they, yeah. they that that kind of production of Northern Soul was just a little bit rougher, and what I started to kind of a bit grittier, grittier. It, that's the word. And I more did, down, yeah, yeah, and it was like um, God. And you had no idea because the artist, oh, there was a Jackie Wilson album I got, which just blew my mind, actually, because I thought, God, he's good. you know. Doing I did kind of go in, yeah, I would say, because I listened to the Motown stuff, and that's what I heard. Um, when I moved to London, I got a job at Lightning Records in the warehouse. Um, so I was getting, um, I was seeing soul stuff coming in and people knew I liked it and I was asking like I like stuff like Jackie Wilson the faster stuff what anything else like, like this yeah um and the people there would go oh you'll probably like this then it's like oh yeah do I um and also the Kent albums oh um, yes god started yes, but... coming out so I would just buy them on a punt just like I just I like this music I don't know who's who buy a compilation because it was something like three quid then when I was working there or something stupid. I was earning £70 a week, so that was still relatively quite a lot. But yes. I remember buying the – I would buy the Kent compilations just to – just as a punt, go, right, I'll, I'll like something on here. And there would be one or two tracks that would just jump out completely. I know. Um, and then good. that was – it was amazing that's where my it was like oh, okay i've got to hunt down all these tracks that i like because there's 40 billion northern soul tracks yeah to actually to actually find the ones and i've got to be honest the vast majority of them don't hit me at all it's like okay but then the ones that hit are just like oh that's on fire yes um, absolutely so that was part of it also i do remember without I think Dexy's Midnight Runners, I remember when they came out thinking, oh, this is good. And they were obviously playing on the Northern Soul, Soul side of stuff. Yes. And their B-sides, Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache and Seven Days is Too Long, Seven Days Too Long. Yeah. I didn't know they were covers. But then at Lightning, there's like, I think that spurred on some re-releases. So the Sevens came in. It was like, oh, that's that Dexy's song in it. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that was a cover. of the, It's like, okay taking them home and going whoa listen to that seven days too long just uh, still amazing them tracks i can put them on now and i'm still can't sit still it's like yes plan so, B. so way, dexy's probably had something to do with it as well yes well john peel used to i used to listen religiously to john peel and he played a lot of kent stuff ella washington i remember and there was one called barbara lewis i used to quite like the ballads the soft ballads which were all oh. about heartbreak and um stuff were always kind of um things that i gravitated to in a way but right. um yes it was it i'm was... the up tempo i'm the up tempo guy i want it banging <laughs> I want yes that. 
Um, but back to John Peel, I would say, yeah, I was a religious John Peel listener. I was that cliche under the bed, under the bedclothes with a little radio next to me ear. So my mum and dad didn't go, oh, you got school tomorrow, go to bed. I wanted to, he was brilliant. It was, it, again, I, I probably 80% of what he played, it was like, hmm, what's, no, I'm not getting it. But it was nice just to hear him talking, for one yes. thing, because <laughs> you felt like he was a mate, or you felt like he was talking to you. It was that, it wasn't a DJ going, hey, you know, oh, there we go, Barkman Turner Overdrive, let's go, hey, lovely, lovely. It was like, oh, here's a track from so-and-so, so-and-so. Matter of fact, it just felt like a friend talking you through stuff. And then the odd track that he would play would be, I wouldn't have heard anywhere else. It's like, wow. Where'd that come from? That's brilliant. What is it? What is it? And try and quickly write it down and yeah, try and find it. Well, it was it was stuff like the very early public, I was going to say public image, public enemy, and then there was, you know, Teela Rock. So there was the early rap stuff, and then there was also things like the Bundu Boys and you yeah, know, Thomas he'd, Thomas he'd McFumo and stuff, wouldn't he? And, and uh, Gregory Isaacs. But then he would, yeah, and then he would play Aaron Neville, and you'd think, oh, that was interesting. Um, you know, it's like, like, like what a track. <laughs> So he um, was yeah, he was no, good was for a, that, you know. So yeah, yeah, a very very I've forgotten the word, but yeah, mixture of all sorts. Eclectic, it, I guess. Indie eclectic, that's the word. In indie stuff, African stuff, reggae stuff. And I've Bulgarian feeling, folk. Said, and folk, yeah, a mixture of everything, which was all delivered with this, oh, here's a track, blah, blah. I was on the beach the other day and saw this and blah blah blah. Yes. So did I you know, I was going to say, because one band that came along in the 80s that we can sort of miss really was because the Redskins, they suddenly appeared, didn't they, with their kind of Clash meets Motown. Did they? Yeah, did yeah, they... yeah. I loved them. I loved it. Yeah. I remember seeing them. I think it was their first London gig supporting the Dead Kennedys. Right. I was blown away by the Redskins. It's like, oh, oh, they've got a solely thing on the go here. Dum, 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 ba, da, dum, da, dum. Lean on me and I will pull you through. True. Keep Which on keeping on. Soul yeah. as you know, as soul as you like. And then they do kick over the statues, which is more political and whatever. But Redskins were great. Yeah, yeah. No, I got into that. Um yes. politically um, sound um for me. Um but yeah, seeing them support the Red um Dick Kennedy's, that was uh, that's one of my little badges. Probably for, get a tattoo somewhere. Yeah, it's probably the, for two know. pound and fifty P, you know. <laughs> yeah, pay no more than three shillings and sixpence or whatever. So when did you decide to go from being an ardent fan to to forming a band? When did this kind of moment come? Because this is quite a jump in life, isn't it, to um think, right, that's it. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of form a band and go through that lovely process. Probably thirteen or fourteen. Right. School bands. I was I was always trying to join stuff. Um I was in a school band which was rock stuff. We were doing rock covers and I think we had two originals, but I was the drummer. I didn't write any of that stuff. Um, at school, I was always, yeah, 13, 14. I was, I got a drum kit at 14. I was immediately off. It's like, right, here we go. What band can I be in? Let's make some, I want to be in a band. Uh, and we were called Sidewinder. Um, and we would do like, it was Deep Purple and um, Black Sabbath. I, I, I think Led Zeppelin, but I don't know if we were that competent to actually do Led Zeppelin, to be honest. Um, yes. And we, and we did um, Pinball Wizard by The Who. 
I think it was Pinball Wizard. Um, and I remember we used to play, I remember playing Great Barton Youth Club. And it was, it was, you know, young teenagers, all rockers. Where I grew up, it was predominantly rockers. If you didn't like status quo, you were in trouble. Um, God, I had exactly the same experience. It was like state, you just did not mess with the quo. No, it, 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 <laughs> yeah, where I grew up, it was rock, full on rock, motorbikes, rock. Um, so I yes. remember doing a Who song and the, everyone just walked out. <laughs> they walked out and waited till we finished the song and then came back in again because it was a, the Who were a mod band. So they weren't having it, even yes. though it was, the, it was a rock song, you know what I mean? But it was, it was rock land where I grew up. Yeah, because we can. I can even say I like the bit. You can appear to like the beat or the specials because you just get thumped and chased down the road. So you'd have to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just the quo, and it was funny because there was families in the in the village I grew up, and they just some on what some days you see all these denim ja- jeans across the washing line. It was just like ten pairs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The old denim cut off over the leather jacket, all doing that dance in a line where they all go. Yep. Or whatever like, that was the whole thing, and I was kind of into that, but at the same time, I started getting into the punk stuff early on. My cousin Nick from London, he'd bring up x ray specs and pistols and stuff like that, and it was kind of like, Oh, the day the, the day the world turned day glow, that, that was like, Oh, that's got Black Sabbath in it for me. That's oh, and this is great lyrics. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like I said, the punk stuff started at the back of the rock stuff came to the front and the rock went to the back yes absolutely so then... there was one there was one punk at our school marcus fallon i think his name was he got expelled for pissing in someone's lunchbox i like that he's <laughs> 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 like okay there we go so yeah no you didn't want to be a punk or a mod round i mean there were punks Barry Barry st edmunds was like a, the nearest little market town that i would go to there were punks there. There was definitely a group of punks there. Right. So you grew up in Suffolk and Bridgie. Yeah. Whereabouts? Yeah, I was well, um, Thurston, a little village four four or five miles from Bury St. Edmunds. Oh, blimey. God. So I, I, was, I was born in Lincolnshire up north. Um, Louth, I was born. Um, my mum's from Edmonton, London. My dad's from Bradford, Bradford. Um, was he's dead now? Bless him. Um, so I'm a north south uh, chameleon. I yes, I yeah. I mean, uh, my London family, and then I got me me Yorkshire family. Um, so bit of a mixture, and I'm happy yes. to be a chameleon and annoy people when they go, yeah, yes, southern bastard. It's like, well, where were you born? Oh, Manchester. Actually, I was born. A little bit more north than Manchester, so you're a southern bastard. I'm or whatever, you know. As a joke, I, um, yeah, no, it was a mixture. I mean, Bury St Edmunds around that way was a big London overspill as well. So there was a kind of the people. Lots of people would would look to London. They would all support London teams, and because there were so many London overspill, you know, when they emptied out the slums and yes. whenever. 
Because I know in the village, which was kind of a bit north of Suffolk, you know, it was on the Waveney Valley area between Norfolk and Suffolk, and there was a few people who saw, from London who supported Chelsea. You know, they they yeah. they they set up a factory somewhere in the small town, very close to the village, and and a lot of people from London sort of relocated and supported Chelsea, which also at the time seemed a bit random, but then it all made sense a bit later. Yeah, well, people would support the the popular teams, which I guess they still do, and. Fair dues is up to them, but I actually started supporting Ipswich. I was because I grew up there. Um, yes, I remember my mum. My mum said to me, "Dad, she said I want to go and see Tottenham at Ipswich because she's an old Tottenham Tottenham girl. My London family are all Tottenham, so I've got a soft spot for them. Um, although I would say I've got a soft spot for QPR because that was my first ever Sabutio team, but that's another." Yes. That's Stan Bowles was our hero, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, no, my mum asked me, Dad, yeah, Tottenham were playing Ipswich. Um, she said, I want to go, and, let's go and see Tottenham. And then my dad being Northern, he, he was a Bradford Northern fan, probably. Um, but he started getting into, they because they went to that match, they went again, and we started going to Ipswich. Yes. Whenever you know, nearly all the home matches. I saw Ipswich win the FA Cup. How about that? Yes, twenty-eight um, against Arsenal. Yeah, and there was a handful of Ipswich punks there. I remember that. Um, Bobby yeah, Robson's no, blue and white army. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was there. I was on. I went to nearly every match on the cup run. That was. I think I missed one. I can't remember why. But my dad became a fanatic. He became an Ipswich Town fan the rest of his life. He was season ticket holder. Yes, absolutely. So, I, I got dragged yeah. along to Portman Road a few times. I saw I saw one night match when they were playing Barcelona with Johan Cruyff and it was like because I loved Johan Cruyff. Okay, was that 3-1? Yeah, Ipswich were yeah. brilliant. Yeah, Brian no, Talbot I, scored a fantastic headed goal and it was It was 3-1 you know, to Ipswich and they won um, the replay. And they won the replay 3-0 and I always remember I was there. I remember the um there was one Barcelona fan when they scored. He ran on the pitch. He was screaming, <laughs> and I remember that. It was like Shh. everyone's going, mm. but thinking, yeah, three-one, we've got this. And then they beat us three-nil. Like, oh, oh never mind. But then you went and won the. I mean, there was one season. Oh God, there was one season where there was on the treble, but they had about forty matches in twenty days, didn't they? They they were literally going for three trophies. Were playing three times a week, and they just ended up with the UEFA Cup, and that was yeah, got the UEFA Cup, and then uh, yeah, no, I remember that. I wasn't there for that, but no. my dad was. He went to that. Um, so I was a passionate Ipswich Town fan for during the seventies. Yes, um, and then when I moved to London, I still went to see him many London places. I went to West Ham, QBR. Arsenal, Tottenham. I'd go and see them for a while, but then I've got to say, punk rock and girls became way more important. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I found, I found the eighties football was not so exciting as it got further into the decade. It was a bit tacky, really. So, um, and there was also so many problems and incidences and deaths on the terraces that it just felt yeah, the violence. The the football violence back then was like whoa. Whoa, I was a little kid. I wasn't, um, we went to Millwall. I think we, was it, we beaten 5-1 or 6-1? The Millwall fans were really not happy. They were not happy at all. Luckily, everyone was blue and white, so it was hard to tell. And I was too <laughs> small to be hit. I was a little, you know, I was a little 12, 13, or what was I, 14, but I was still small for my age. 
So I wasn't going to get hit, but my brother was big enough to get hit. But we sort of like just kept out of the way. They would. I mean, I, I remember all the football violence back then. It was horrific. It was yeah. unreal. It, it was. There'd be like four policemen trying to separate thousands of people that wanted to kill each other. Yeah, it was not. It was before the barriers. It was before you know. Um, there was some you know horrific stuff that happened, so they put barriers in. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, I know. I remember that. Some of the when the London teams came, you knew that the pubs would get smashed up. You knew that there'd be fights. Anyway, yeah, no, I could go off into that, but it was that was a rough old time. Yep, it was. I think there's a new book that's just come out about eighty the eighties football world because there was like the Bradford fire. There was various kind of, you know, I don't know, people being crushed and killed. What yeah. during the eighties? It was just, um, it was. Just it changed it. it. Then they started it. fighting outside the grounds instead. Yeah, and there was yeah. T- there was there was also those tight shorts and moustaches and mullet hairstyles. Yeah, and yeah. It just doesn't shorts. it doesn't look good, does it? <laughs> the curly perms. There was a big thing of the curly perms. I remember Gr- that. Gr- Graham Sooners. Oh, God, and then there was the thing on the terraces, with, with the flick, like the casuals came in, and they had the flick. So the whole terrace, they were just sitting there, you know, standing there, flicking their hair the whole time because one of it is covering your eyes. So yes, the flick. I remember all that. But yeah, the violence and stuff. No, 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 no. That was uh, that took away the fun, really. But then, so on the on as as we trundled through the eighties and we were coming to the the poll tax years and all that one malarkey. You bring out your first album, don't you? Which has got all you know. It's got a lot of energy, a lot of passion, and two great cover versions. This is so. Did the did this come together relatively smoothly? Your your debut album. Um, no, not really. It, it took a long time, if I think back. Um, it came about because I was in a band called Come What May. I started on guitar, then ended up on drums. Um, and Simon and Andy were in a band called But Jim Millions Will Die. Um, and we played together a few times, and I'd go and see them, and they'd come and see us. And, um, and then their drummer, Graham, he, Grodheim the Pungent, as he, as he was known, he couldn't make a rehearsal. So they Ty and, Ty said, will you stand in? And that was some point around about the summer of 86. Maybe spring, I can't remember exactly. But mm. so I stood in for the drummer and I was, I wanted to thrash everything. I wanted, I wanted GBH and Discharge and boom, boom, boom. And they were they weren't a thrash band. They were more of a. They, it wasn't a thrash band. It was kind of like punky indie type thing. Yes. And I remember Ty playing Purple A's, and I thrashed it. I just put a thrash beat on it, and it was kind of for me that was like this when Snuff was born in my head. It was like, oh right, okay. Um. And then those two bands, like not long after, fell apart. Um started doing something with Cy with a um another Neesden mate, Neil Brighton on bass for a while, but then his girlfriend wouldn't let him out on a Friday night. So we always used to rehearse after well, I was working, so it'd be after Friday night we'd, that would be rehearsal time. She said, Well no, Friday night's is me time. You've got to choose but you know, so he chose his girlfriend. Fair dues, no no hard feelings. <laughs> and then a while later Andy came in. Um but it actually that first album 
it took quite a long time. We were, um, if I look back, we didn't do it. We did a gig after about a year, I think, pretty much to our mates in, in um, New Merlin's Cave in King's Cross. And then it was like another eight or nine months before we did another gig. So for a couple of years, we was working on these songs. We loved it. We were passionate about it, but we also thought, well, no one's really going to like this. Yes. This, this is our little thing. So, mm. so it was, It was. I think in the end, that album from start, very start to very finish was like three years, three and a half years. Right. So, so it was actually quite a long time. Um, and we, and so, okay, so on the, they, uh, so then, you know, obviously you probably heard this a million times. Then I hear John Peel play, I think we're alone now. And it's like, oh, this is very interesting. Workers play yeah. time. And off I went and bought the album. So I must have seen the band live around 1989, 1990 at the Norwich Arts Centre. I right. came to see Snuff. So you must have started touring quite a bit more by the turn of the decade. Um, yeah, 88, end of 88. Um, I don't know the exact figures, but I know that. Um, well, it was it was a band called Big Boy Tomato, and they were they were rehearsing. We were rehearsing in Collingdale, and they were rehearsing next door. And um, two of them came in, and it was like, "Oh, do you mind if we listen to a few songs?" It's sort of like, "Yeah, fair dues, don't mind, no, come in." <laughs> and they sat there and listened to it, and they go, "This is amazing." Do you want a gig? Do you want gigs? Like, well, yeah. And they put us in touch with, I've forgotten his name, but the man that was doing the stuff at the Roby, he would put in on he was putting on regular gigs at the Roby. Right. Finn. Was it his name? Finn? I can't remember. By the way, then people heard us and someone in the in the press was there. I think it was Melody Maker or whoever, went, Oh, this is a little short little bit in the paper. And we, we were amazed. It's like they're writing about us. Oh, so they like it. Bloody hell. And from that, people heard it and we were having a very positive effect on people. They're like, oh, so 88, we supported everyone, any band everywhere in London. We, I think we did something like 30 or 40 gigs in London as support slots. So were you supporting people like my buddy, Bloody Valentine or Silverfish or... Uh, faith, uh, we, faith healers, I don't think or... we ever played with My Bloody Valentine. I went to see My Bloody Valentine, but um, with Silverfish we were playing with. Um, but early in like '88, it was all Bolt Thrower and the Abs and oh right HDQ and Extreme Noise Terror. Extreme Noise Terror. I don't remember actually playing with them, but I did see them. But um, yeah, no punk bands. We kind of became the go-to support slide. Like, oh, you need to see this slide. Um, so we were on the bill. Amer lots of American bands as well. Whenever the more punky stuff, Canterbury Arms in Brixton, we were playing there every other week, pretty much. And Sir George, pardon me, Sir George Roby, we were playing there a lot. Yes. Um, so a lot of support slots. And one at the Roby, John Peel was there. I think it was Heresy. Oh, of course. And, uh, he was there. And then I remember my mates next day, he meant, he said something on uh, on his radio. I didn't hear him say it, but it was like, 
saw a great band last night, Snuff. If anyone knows them, tell them to get in touch. I have to get them in for a session. It was like the, my phone was the next day. He was like, did you hear John Peel last night? Did you hear John Peel? I was like, no. He mentioned you. He wants you to do a session. I was like, what? What? After all them years under the blanket, trying to not, you know, listening to him, not trying to not let me mum and dad hear that I was staying up late listening to him. Yes. That was a massively joyous shock. So when we, yeah, we got a John Peel session and it that ex- then exploded. It was like, whoosh. So you had the famous Del Griffin from Mott the Hoople producing you, didn't you? This was 89. So what was he, because obviously being a drummer, what was, um, did you have a good time in your session with uh, at the Maid of L? Did we have a good time? We were in awe, I'll say that. I remember being a bit of a pedantic little sod as well. Um, In in certain, oh no, you got Turnitin Barley up, and he was like, no, it's too loud. He was like, oh no, no, it's important, because, you know, the scatter lights were in my head. It's like, you got to, you know, come on, put it. And now I listen back, it's like, he was right. That was way too loud. <laughs> I was a pedantic little git. Um, he, it was fun, but if I, I, I don't want to slag him off, but he was just doing his job. He was yeah, like, of course, um, yeah. I don't think he was too enthusiastic about the music. Um, he was doing his job. So um, I just remember being in awe, thinking, wow. People those like sessions, it. I mean, a lot of the sessions that they did, or they, you, you know, bands did for the BBC often sound better than the album, bizarrely. So I don't know. I remember the Smiths, kind of, the, the Smiths L, uh, stuff on the BBC sounds much better than that first album they did, which sounds awful. I can, I, I can go, yeah, I go along with that. Watch over the years, I, I think we've gone round in circle. I've personally gone round in circles um, with production techniques and um try playing the clicks i can't do it i don't like it um although the acoustic album was played to a click so that's a good thing but live there's no there's no for me personally there's no um nothing beats getting it rehearsed up tight as tight as you can live and then doing it as quick as possible in the studio i find that the more time you give a band more money, the more boring it gets. Because you don't want to hear any mistakes. You want to smooth out all the mistakes and make it all perfect. And what you're actually doing is taking the life out of it. Yes. So there's a big thing. First of all, the BBC studios are really top quality studios. So sonically, you're going to get a really good sound. But also, you do it in a day. And you've got to belt it out. Um, get a, a good live performance and that's what works what works is getting it rehearsed up play it as live as possible too often you can just smooth it all out and like even you know i'm i include myself in that it's like oh i made a slightly i didn't quite play that beat right and i think i dragged that tempo a little bit oh it's a terrible version it's a terrible version let's do it again and then you do it again and get it right but boring Right, <laughs> <laughs> it's little yeah. bits of mistakes actually keep the ear interested, but yes. we, as musicians, we want to get rid of them because we can't bear that mistake. But we're yes. the ones we're bothered about it. People, yes, other people ain't bothered. We're not bothered. We just want that. So, whose idea was the Tiffany song? Um, it was mine because I, I used to go to the mod club in Shepherd's Bush, 
Um, Tommy James and the Shondells, they'd play that once in a while. Um, and I like that song anyway. Um, and then Tiffany did a hit with it. I, I knew it as Tommy James and the Shondells. Right. Um, God, and then Tiffany book. did it, and it's like, okay, let's do this. Let's thrash it up. Yes. So, God, that was just genius, though, wasn't it? Well, thank you. Or do you mean Tiffany or Tommy James and the Shondells? <laughs> well, it's just, it just has, it's got teenage, it's just teenage love, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's the classic teenage love story. Yeah. And it's, it's a know. love song. It's, yeah. So that makes sense to me with the older, well, it's, like I said, I heard it in the Mod Club. I used to dance to it in the Mod Club in Shepherd's Bush. So that was my first portal call. And when it came out, it's like, yeah, we can do this. It's a simple structure. Let's go. And- and did workers playtime? Did they come? Did you go to them, or did they come to you to say, "Look, we want you on our label"? They came to us. There was a um, old friend, Angus. I think he worked there, or he had something to do with workers playtime, and he introduced them. He, I think, he spoke to Bill Gilliam and said, "You should have a listen to this band." Um, so it was via Angus that they we didn't. Um, yeah, they 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 came to us. It was we didn't punt anything about. We didn't trust anyone. We didn't like anyone in the music business. Yes, just really didn't want to have anything to do with it. Just didn't trust them. But in the end, they said, "Here's an album. You know, have a look at the deal." And we just signed anyway. So like, we didn't think it through. It was just, oh, someone's interested. Let's go. Oh, that's amazing, isn't it? I know we, we you know, the, the joy of youth. So, as the, as the, then the nineties, the John Major years, what was it like for you keeping the band going and ticking over? Because obviously, you do a couple of albums which have well tracks. You, you love your Shaken Vac and and uh, Brighter Shade of Winter and and things like that. Did you Whiter Shade? Um, is it? Oh, uh, uh, Hazy Shade of Winter. You, hazy. Yeah. No, I was a bit of a. Um, I was a bit of a. Simon and Garfunkel fan as a kid. I remember getting asking for um Bridge Over Troubled Water as a Christmas present. Which was again that that if my friends came round, then I'd leave Live and Dangerous and <laughs> and you know, whatever in rock by Deep Purple at the front and at the back, there'd be, you know, with the punk stuff, there'd be a Simon and Garfunkel album. The Boxer. <laughs> yeah, the Boxer. Brilliant. Brilliant song. We love that song. Um, yeah, so um, I'd, I'd like see if you. I mean, we weren't the first band to do punk covers at all. You know, what I mean, it was something. Was it the Dickies? I, I, well, Dickies. I remember the Dickies doing "Nights in White Satin," thinking, "Wow, that's clever." Oh, like what you done there. And I remember hearing Stiff Little Fingers doing "Johnny Was" and um, what was the other reggae song they did? Um, uh, rock the river, right to the river, man. They it, and the Clash, of course, doing um, police and thieves, police and thieves. So we certainly weren't the first. It was, it was a, it was like, oh, there's something in that. Um, and I like the silly stuff. I, I like, I like absolutely silly puerile stuff. Um, luckily, there's normally people about to rein it in, so it doesn't go too <laughs> stupid. But left to my own devices, I will fully go down the pure old nonsense, you know. Was that your, like, route. David Bowie's pin-ups when you did, you know, there was rods and mockers, do nothing, shaken black, <laughs> can't explain. Shaken black. Well, yes. what was it? It was adverts, because there's 
the thing if something's in the public consciousness, like adverts back in the seventies, everyone knew them. Yeah, because you you all watched the same television. There was no like internet channels, four thousand channels. Everyone knew, and adverts were aimed at that. So you had whole. Um, everyone knew you'd be talking about it in the playground. So that once something's in the public consciousness and you get on that bandwagon, you're, you're kind of, you're pushing a button that everyone will know. Um, so the adverts, yeah, it was, it was a bit of fun, just a bit of a joke. And it made sense. You play a few serious songs and then go, here's a stupid song. No, 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 no. And it, it had some sort of, you know, it, it, it's got a, a, a power to it that, that is, if, if you can do a cover of a song in a different way, and make it really interesting. That, that's got a power to it because people know the song, but they haven't it's, heard it, the it, It's kind of brilliant it. because obviously us of a generation can all remember the Shake and Vac advert yeah. with such, you know, like, God, yes, I remember it. And it doesn't go on too long to uh, wear thin, so it's a, kind of a classic really, isn't it? Because you do yeah. love a kind of covers album, don't you? You love a cover track. Yeah. I mean, I'll, yeah, definitely. Um, Did that help you? Does that help your own songwriting when you cover like magic moments and you think I can morph that and tweak it and then it comes my song? It it definitely, yeah, it inspires the writing in a way because you 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 hear a chord change or a structure and a lyric from someone else how they do it. You work it out, and then it's sort of like, oh, that doesn't quite work as a cover. But if I just change this or play the chords backwards. Um, oh, that works as something else, which does. It, for me, it inspires the writing. It, it, if I, like I said, um, Ziggy Stardust, I remember working that out on guitar, looking at the chords in a chord chart, going, "What the hell is that?" Okay, oh, those two chords sound good together. So it inspires it. It spurs you on into something else. Yes. Um, a new way of thinking about stuff, an angle that you hadn't necessarily thought about yourself. So I love covers. Also, the lyrics are written. Writing lyrics sometimes is wonderful and easy and cathartic and and it comes and just flows out. Other times you're just banging your head against the wall for months trying to make something happen. So someone else has written the format and the (laughs) lyric it's like okay, just gotta go with this. They've done it. I don't have to think about it. Yes, absolutely. So, so various things, but it helps definitely helps spur on the writing. I would always recommend that people just learn a few other people's songs just to see how they do it, because it will give you a different opinion. Because I think with people like Burt Backrack, initially you think that oh that's easy listening, and then any musician go God that's so complicated. It's really a lot harder than you expect. And mm. you, I guess you raise your own game by thinking. Blimey, that's not simple, is it? That's yeah. No, it, if if a song sounds natural and simple, often it really isn't. It just sounds that way. They've made it sound natural and simple. I mean, okay, rock and roll, three chord tricks all the way across the board. But the lyric and the vocal will take it. You can have the same three chord trick five hundred times, but a different vocal will take it in a completely different place every time. Yes. So, um, but again, yeah, Burt Bacharach, you think them songs are simple. They're not. They're really, really well-crafted, structured. It's just easy on the ear because it feels natural. Yes. They haven't just fallen out like that. No. They've worked at it. 
<laughs> so how did you cope in the 90s doing a the john major years brit pop and you you know by then you'd been in the band sort of or the band being owned sort of for six seven years was it was it kind of um tricky well, nine, that... um 91 i mean we snuff kind of exploded for a few years and burnt out a bit to be honest we kind of did too much um it all got a bit ratty backstage so 91 we finished um we got back together 94 which i didn't really think was going to happen to be honest i I did start working with si again um and never thought andy would come back and he did um we weren't going to call it snuff we were going to just do other stuff and not do old snuff songs but everyone just sort of like it's snuff what are you talking about you are snuff and fat mike as well was like look I'll put I'll, I'll raise the advance. <laughs> call it snuff. It's like okay then, right? So snuff came back. Although I would say that first year was possibly with the original three piece. The musical chemistry was brilliant. Um, I've got to try and be diplomatic here, but backstage it wasn't. No, it was possibly the most surreal year of my life. Um. Mm, it's kind of hard to talk about because I don't want to bring out dirty washing. No, no, of course. But did I always but remember I, when the police reformed and, you know, obviously they got a big advance, three members, and they thought mm, perhaps we should. And then they realised that, you know, two members of the band really weren't enjoying it. So they had band therapy to try and clear the air. And so they, they had a bit of a chat and Sting explained to Stuart, you know, everything you've said really hurts, but I haven't told you that. And then I think they cleared the air and said, right, let's finish the tour because we've made a big commitment. Did you, did you ever feel like band therapy could have helped with, with those early? Looking back 100%. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, it's, if I go into it, I feel awkward talking about it because what I want to say and what I feel I should say is two very different things. I, I like to just say that musically the chemistry was brilliant. That was, it was brilliant. And I think part of it was the fact that it was so awkward at times. It spurred the music on in a way because it was another, okay, we'll get this out through the music. Um, It was a surreal year. Surreal. There was all sorts of problems going on. And yeah, and now I'll turn it into a therapy session. So we'll talk <laughs> about how, um, yeah, no, but seriously, if we could go back, Yes, definitely. We we four hundred percent needed someone to talk to, and and put it in perspective and say, "Can you three see what you're doing?" Um, was 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 th- three the worst number you could have possibly had? Would it have been better if there had been a few more? Or was it just was that because it wasn't very diluted? Was it three people? Um, I like a free musically. I like a tight free piece. Like the jam is, is a fine example. You, because, I mean, I like four pieces, I like five pieces, I like nine pieces, whatever. But a free piece, a good tight free piece, there's no room for like flab in that. You've got to be really tight and on it and filling up the whole song as a free piece. So that um, three piece is good, four piece. From experience, the more people in the band, the more chance you can have rouse. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's more. There's more emotional shit going on. It, it's um, it's a funny old thing keeping 
people's egos and happiness and um someone's going through a bad time whatever you've got to try and soak it up and sort it out yeah but yeah no i definitely would say i would i would love to go back and throw a, a therapist in the middle of what was going on and go right someone else outside the band to sort this out and bounce off um Yes, it's a, it's a tricky. Well, yeah, because you had that classic. I was just thinking, the Motorhead, Jimi Hendrix, Cream. You know, they were the, those bands, weren't they? The three-piece bands that just there was just it was tight. There was no yeah. fab. There was no there was no excess. Yeah, just, the Jam, all of those bands. I mean, yes, definitely. Motorhead, Bomber. You know, the first it wasn't the first line, it was it? But the Filthy Phil, Filthy Fast, fast Eddie. Eddie. Yes, before and that's my era of motorhead. I absolutely loved it. Yes. There was Same with the jam. The jam were just tight. I kind of lost me a little bit by the end, but tight, three piece vocals, bang on it. No room for no no room for shirkers. <laughs> I remember doing an interview with Joseph Porter from Blythe Power. And I think one of the problems he had and that you know the band had was like this who who is the band? I think Motorhead, that classic lineup, also had who is the band? You know, is there, you know, and I think that that thing of democracy, do you all have to agree? Is there one person who really is the person who's doing it, like Paul Weller or Lemmy? You know, but then the other two are saying, no, that's my band as well. We should have you know the see equal kind of share and and i think you know because i did an interview with fast eddie and he it was a bit like you know they all thought it was their band but when fast eddie and then phil left it was very much like that's that's lemmy really is motorhead isn't it and the other guys who then stepped in of like you know your place did you have that problem with snuff a bit of like well who you know who is snuff it was it kind of an ownership thing at that stage um I guess, it, yeah, kind of. It kind, it sort of became me. Um, whereas the first original three piece was was a, it was the it was the three people as snuff. Yes, and and fair play, loads of people that saw that lineup. That's the classic lineup. They're not bothered about the later snuff. Fair play. Um, but it kind of did become more me. I'd say that. Yes, it was sort of like. I was always the predominant songwriter, not completely, but I wrote most of the soft songs, nearly all the lyrics. So it kind of was me, but I'd see the first three piece as a group. I mean, Andy would bring some incredible bass lines and songs would come out of that and Cy would come out with simple, brilliant riffs, um, sometimes great lyrics as well. So it was a mixture of the three. Then it kind of became more me. I kept it going. So for better or worse, um, managed to keep it going this long. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Has there been times when you thought, God, I'm just going to drop it and then surprise yourself that Snuff are still back doing it again? Um, well, we did. We we had a hiatus, shall I say. When was it? 2004, something like that. Um, it kind of it, it got to a point where we financially we just couldn't keep it going it was it was kind of going in circles and well it's going into a place where we just couldn't keep it going anyway yeah as a full-time thing it was just wasn't possible so i went off and did other things um and then after a few years it kind of came back together sort of happy accident kind of thing people saying oh will you play my wedding or it's like mm, 
I don't know. I'll ask the others, see if they, we haven't <laughs> done a gig for four years. Let's have a look. Do you want to do a gig? No, we could do. Yeah, right. Like, oh, so we could actually do this again. Okay, let's do it again. Um, so it kind of fell back in a way like that. Um, there are times when, yeah, when financially it's, it's maddening to keep it going and emotionally as well because you have, everyone goes through phases in life, all sorts of different things. God forbid drugs will be involved or God forbid that someone splits up with their missus and doesn't, yes. you know, whatever, for whatever reason, it can be very hard to keep going. Yes. It's, it, it's a constant. I'm amazed that we survived this long, to be honest. <laughs> it's true. Did you, I mean, because you did a tour of Japan, didn't you? And and you've been around Europe. Have, did you do America at all? Yeah, we did. Well, we got Japan, we kind of exploded, which is nice. 91 was the first time we went there. That was the original lineup. Um, and we we made an effort or to to try and, I mean, always going any to another country, I'll try and at least learn a few words in their language to make it a connection, to make some sort of connection. Yeah. And if possible, learn some nursery rhyme from that country so that people would, you know, it, it immediately, that old point about you jump on a, on a bandwagon that's already there because there's a nursery rhyme, everyone knows it. So if you do it, it already clicks something in someone's head. It's like, oh. It's sort of like, oh, they're one of us. It's not just the band that walks on stage with the same old gen every night. You motherfuckers are the best fucking audience in the whole fucking world. <laughs> you know, all that bullshit that people come out with every night, a choreographed bullshit. Yes. But make it different every night. Make it about them, not about you in in certain ways. So we in Japan, we hit a lucky streak. We did a version of an, a Japanese nursery rhyme. Um, and people, it freaked him out. But he's he's singing in Japanese, and it's a Japanese song. What we're supposed to be, we're looking to the foreign bands and going, we love you, foreign bands, and they're looking to us. What's going on here? <laughs> so we kind of hit a lucky streak there. Um, Europe again, we would try and say something in the language and try and have a silly little song. Yes, we have no bananas in French or whatever, you know, blah blah blah. Um, America didn't like us really. Oh, by and large, they just weren't getting it. It was we'd have one great gig out of ten, from what I remember. We tried over and over mean? again. Um, we had a tour. The original three piece did a tour. Ninety, I think it was ninety one. Can't remember exactly. Um, that was with Sam. I am. Um. We were supporting Sam I Am. We we left some good memories, that's for sure, and some great gigs. But people didn't didn't jump on it. The bands seemed to love it. Yeah. Other bands, I mean Fat Mike and I remember we played a gig in San Francisco and there was I'm told later there was members of, you know, Rancid and No Effects and loads of famous bands all there. Um so the bands liked it, but the punters not so much. <laughs> it was oh, kind of, so we tried. Did you ever get offered to play the Las Vegas bowl, punk bowling weekend? Because they often yeah, have... no, yeah, 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 punk rock bowling. We get offered, 
But going to America with with all the if you're going legally, the visas are just impossible, absolutely impossible. But you know the the cost and the time it takes to get visas to go in legally, it's impossible. It, there's right. no way. There's no way to make money. You're going to lose thousands and thousands. I mean, much as I want to go, I mean, we could if we went in just under the radar, we we'd have a chance. But then there's always the chance that you're not going to get in. Because they'll they'll Google it and go, "What are you here for? Just come to visit friends." What's your name? Don't remember. <laughs> oh, we see it's advertised that you're playing a gig. You're coming <laughs> for money. See you later. You're never coming back again. Yes, this is so. This is, you can go always, radar, yes, yes. Um, Mid- it's like Midnight Express, isn't it? Really? Yeah, it, it's it, yeah. Go under the radar, and if the promoter's cool with the fact that the gig might not happen, fine. Try and pay for visas forget it absolutely forget it it's just not possible yes god that's so, i mean other countries are fine japan is one of the easiest countries i think the visas cost like 25 quid or 50 quid and they're they're going this is fine lovely 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 <laughs> trying to get an american visa it's basically what do you want son why prove everything about your whole life ever it's sort of like just trying to do a gig oh and by the way it, you know this is costing you a few hundred quid just for the first interview to see if we'll even talk to you for the next interview. Then you go back for another one and then you've got to have a form done by lawyers to have it completely perfect. You get one thing wrong, forget it. You lost all your money, start again. Um, yes. Yeah, no, as you can tell, I'm not too keen on the American visa arrangements. No, I think a lot of British bands have just felt a bit disappointed thinking, I just would love to do it one more time, you know, while we can, but... um. Mm. That's just a dream, isn't it, really? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we, we did go in the past. We we have gone under the radar sometimes in the past. But again, the punters just, um, there's a hardcore of people that love it. But it's kind of like the Anglophiles, and, and it's not everyone. We no. would have great gigs supporting, like with no effects and big lineups. We would we'd go on, there'd be a massive pit, and everyone's loving it. It's like, okay, make a note of that. We'll go back to this town. We'll go back on our own and we'll be playing to the support band's parents. So it was like, it worked as part of a big thing on our own. It it didn't work. Yes. I know, it's tricky, isn't it? So when, so, I mean, obviously, you know, you've done really amazingly well keeping the band going and you've got this, you've got a, a live date, haven't you? A stream live and also online. Have you, have yeah. you been tempted, if this goes well, to do some more dates around the country as an acoustic show. Um, yeah, I'll definitely keep open the idea of doing more acoustic gigs. Um, partly because it's, well, we haven't done one as snuff yet, but I like doing them on my own, although it is a very different kettle of fish. It's very nervy. You're naked. There's no wall of noise to hide behind. You're naked. It's like, oh my word! Every single lyric is heard, and every single bit of guitar is heard. With a live loud thing, I can mumble any old bullshit, and no one knows what I'm saying. <laughs> I get a verse wrong, it's sort of like, ah, oh, doesn't matter. You know, make yes. a mistake. It's behind a wall of noise. It's like, okay, that's gone, but it's glaringly obvious when you do it acoustic. Um, but yeah, no, a, a chance of opening up other things to do as well if it's. Um, a different thing. It's nice to have different. Um, I I can't go off on tour with a live loud thing for too long. Physically, I can't do it anymore. It's, it's 
I mean, I'm, I never could, to be honest. And one, I remember like 24, 25-year-old doing two months. I'd come back and I'd be absolutely wrecked for about three weeks, not even, you know, just now it's it's i'm afraid that's got sure <laughs> yes i could imagine heading, yes heading for 60 i don't quite have the stamina that i used to have voice starts going body starts aching mentally it's a lot of stress going off on tour keeping that together um for me um it's so interesting because I, I did an interview with Nils Lofgren once and he was saying that he just gets homesick. So he never does more than a couple of weeks away because he just can't bear it. And he'll just need to come home and see his animals and dog and home. So um, it was kind of interesting. I never heard anybody admit that before. So I thought, oh, Nils Lofgren, hey? he does. When, yes. my, when my kids were young, it really hurt going away. When they're little and they, they need constant cuddles and, you know, and attention. That would really hurt going off on tour. It'd be like, oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. Oh, my God. Um, we would still, back then, I'm talking about 20, 30 years ago now, but that would hurt. That would really hurt being away from them. Yes. Um, um, at that time, I would. we would still be doing like four or five-week tours here and there, away for two or three weeks. Um. That was painful. That was painful physically, mentally, and emotionally. <laughs> it was like <laughs> when they're little, I mean, now they're, they're grown up. It's me, my youngest is 18 now, my oldest is heading for 30. So it's like, where did that all go? They don't yes, miss dad. Quite... They don't miss dad in the same way at all <laughs> that they used to. <laughs> if, you know, they're teenagers and 20s or so. So like, yeah, whatever, leave me alone. I'm, can't you see I've got my life? So, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's not the same equation, but physically I couldn't do more than like 10 days now if it's snuff, because it's, it's very physical what I do as well. It's that's a lot of fast, energetic music. If I was just, just playing guitar or just playing drums, that's, that'd be a different thing. But the vocal, it's a, that's the one, it's a, it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of effort. Yes. And um, I could imagine you, that's why Grant Hart probably was such a role model, I guess. He was, uh, yeah, definitely Grant Hart, but was a was a, a big inspiration. The, the, the whole, I mean, Bob Mould as well, the whole Husker D thing was was great. Um, yeah, singing drummer. There was always that thing of, well, come out front, come out front. Like, no, I'm comfortable here, thanks. It's what I do. So I never actually wanted to come out front. It's never, it's actually awkward to come out front with no... Mm. I can do it with a guitar because you've got a barrier there. Yes. But just just singing, it's like, wow, how do people do this? I mean, I've done it once or twice with one song. We, I'd come out front and we'd swap instruments. It's not comfortable for me at all. I don't know how a front man does that. I guess Phil, Phil, Phil Collins is the only one that comes to mind, isn't he? Who else is there? Karen Carpenter. She's a drummer. Phil Collins. Yes. Don um, Henley. Yeah. Is it the... the uh, the, the eagles, eagles. Yeah, yeah yeah so they, they have been there but if it's a business thing business labels they say come out front come out front you know be the front man it's like, no 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 no, not me i'll come out with a guitar that's okay like i said i've got a barrier but no guitar it's like oh and then acoustic <laughs> well back to that it's, it's it's a different thing it's um it's not as physical um, yes it's 
something else to explore and, and do people a different type not everyone likes acoustic a different type of people will like acoustic to a loud thing yes um, but i guess i guess actually with a lot of your fans getting to a certain age the band be, you know bands become so important don't they they're important when you're young but they have that connection and the thing that holds us a bit like supporting the football team as well isn't it and um yeah i I sort of know from hearing people talk about their band that they love, you know, just how important that relationship is. So um, I'm sure if it's acoustic or electric and noisy, they'll still love it. There will be still people there that love it, but not always the acoustic. It's not to everyone's taste. It's not, you know, if someone just wants the loud stuff, fair dues. Other people would probably listen to the acoustic stuff and never want to listen to the loud stuff and, and fine, whatever you know, whatever floats someone's boat, that's that's all cool. But so partly to, ca- to carry on as a musician, I kind of got to have different things on the go. Snuff isn't big enough to um to make it a full time living on its yes. own, um, unless we went off on tour for f- at least four, five, maybe six months a year, and, and that's not going to happen. That's no, not, my God. <laughs> no, that's that definitely be, not going to happen. I can't would... do that. You'd be too. Everyone would be in rehab by then, wouldn't they? You know, doing the yeah, I'd be dead. <laughs> this is true. This would yeah, no one could keep that going really. It's impressive when people do. But did you um? How did lockdown? Because being somebody who obviously goes out and plays live shows, did you get a period of sort of going through your archives and thinking, right, what do I need to sort out in in the loft with all these bits and pieces I've done? Lockdown was that was weird. That was weird. Um, with lockdown I got to realise just how much the routine um, mentally and physically how much that meant you don't realise when you're doing it I'll be off on tour going wish I was at home or rehearsals it's like okay I'm off at rehearsals I'm belting it out loud singing loud Yes. you don't realise how loud it is unless you're standing next to someone that's doing it um, so I can't really do that at home. Um, if I sing full volume, the whole street can hear, literally. It, it's <laughs> it's not going to happen. The kids no. all say, Dad, what the hell are you doing? You can't <laughs> be up there singing that loud, you know, whatever. It's like, well, that's kind of what I do. Yes. And if you don't put it loud, you don't get an idea, a full idea of what you can and can't do. You can I can sit and write a song and go, right, here's a melody in my head. Okay, this melody, like la 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 la. Yeah, I think this will work. And then you get to a rehearsal room and go, oh, oh okay. Oh, you know, it doesn't you can't always tell what's gonna work. You think you don't know how much breath you got, you don't know if it's the right pitch. You can roughly guess, but you don't always know. So that's one thing I really noticed was I was the routine had gone. There's no way to I could sit and write songs and I was still writing songs. I would have to try and pitch if I I'd have to try and guess and I'd get a t-shirt or a jacket and sing it to me, you know, with a something so it wasn't as loud in, enough to annoy everyone in the street, yes. but I could guess, right, that is gonna be the right pitch, and I probably will have enough breath to do that or not. Um, so yeah, there were two lockdowns. The first lockdown, I was, it was kind of exciting at first in a way, 
it was sort of, oh, this is a bit weird. This is a science fiction film going on here. I can walk the dog down the Pinner Road and I can see one van in the distance and that's it. Yeah, This is weird. So it was a little, at first it was sort of like, oh, a little bit, oh, this is something new. And I got furloughed, so I was, wasn't was financially in immediate trouble. Um, then after a while, I remember halfway through the first lockdown, I lost it mentally. It was just like, this, this, I don't know what, this is mad. This is mad. The, everything's wrong. There's no, there's no release. I mean, I could sit and write a song, but I couldn't go to a rehearsal room. Couldn't, you know, I couldn't have that physical and mental release of working on songs like that. Even though I could, you know, do it quiet, but that isn't, doesn't let you know completely how it's going to work. I did lose it. A few days I went proper mental, just sort of like, and then came out of it. It's like, okay, okay. Um, and then kind of opened up a little bit and it was like, ooh. But then still the rehearsal rooms weren't open. Yeah. So we so we couldn't go to rehearse loud. Um, and then lockdown number two came, came in. That was just dark. That was just dark, 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 dark. It was like, whoa. So mentally that was just like, I need to be able to belt a drum kit and need to be able to go to a rehearsal room and release this because it, I mean, the loud vocal, the way I think it is, that's a, that's a full workout. It's a full, you get fully sweaty just by doing that without yeah. putting the drums to it. Um, one thing I didn't miss was the traveling. I remember sitting there going, I'm really missing gigs and rehearsals and, and the social interactions that you get because, you know, an idea bouncing off another person gives you another idea and you build a song like that. Um, I missed all that, but I didn't miss the traveling. It was like, oh, actually, I'm not I'm not missing that. That, that was like, oof, missing the gigs, not the travel. Yes. That was, that was one side of it. Um, but luckily um, for us, um, and me in particular, and us, um, local venue called the Trinity Bar in Harrow. I was looking online, you know, social networks, which I often try and avoid, but sometimes I have a look. And I saw that they posted up, oh, someone's using the Trinity Bar as a recording space. And I remember seeing Chris, who, he, he's got a dog. I mean, it was a different dog now. He sadly died, but I'd be walking the dog in the graveyard. That was my little routine. Spend as long as possible out the house walking the dog. And he was there and we got chatting. And I said, I saw you've got someone recording in the Trinity Bar. How's that working? And it turned out that they got a grant. And part of that, what part of the grant was help local artists. And I said, hello, here's one. Yes. Here's one. Can I come in? And I'll never forget it. The, the, the relief he said yeah you can come in whenever you want so i took my amp up there took my guitar and i just stood there playing loud singing my heart out everything i was playing wembley stadium as far as i was concerned it was such a relief and luckily we so the band got to rehearse there so we got well rehearsed and it was in harrow i wasn't traveling anywhere i was had this wonderful therapeutic cathartic release of music um landed on our feet there second lockdown even though mentally it was dark for other reasons but 
Um, we did all right out of that. God knows what would have happened if we hadn't had that. It, it yeah. was, I would have gone into a darker and darker place. It was no release. There was no release. It was just like, I still had, you know, my family. I still had all that. So that was good. But eesh, I've got horrible memories of the second lockdown. That was, thank God that the Trinity saved, they saved me. God, thank yes. you, Trinity. <laughs> Yes, I think we, we we the first yeah you're right the first one was exciting and the weather was good and we all thought this is brilliant and then then it dragged on and then, then it went on. yeah mm, that's long enough now <laughs> that's, that's way enough. too long so does that mean that after this kind of release I know the release hasn't even happened and the, and the live date does that mean that you've got material waiting to be recorded or have you recorded new material for for another album yeah we've done a, we um recorded another eight loud tracks. Um, they're not quite finished, not all finished, um, but of course they're marvellous. Um, eight loud tracks, and we did three, we've started three acoustic versions of some of them tracks, and also another new acoustic track. So there's 12 tracks we're working on. Um, six or six or seven are nearly finished. Um, the rest is work in progress. But I'm playing Toy Dolls as well, and I'm about to start getting busy with that. So we, we even though the tracks weren't finished, it's always better to have the tracks fully rehearsed, preferably played live a few times to bed them in and then record them. But I knew that if I didn't do it, it was last month we did it. If I didn't do it then, it wouldn't happen again until probably October, November. And then we'd have to get them rehearsed up again and get them back up to speed. So I, I just grabbed the chance and we went and recorded them already. So there's another album nearly, you know, the, um, the lyrics are on two of them ain't finished yet, but they'll get there. The melodies are done. It's just got to fit the lyrics in. Yes. So there's another album coming, which would be a mixture, <coughs> excuse me, of loud and acoustic. God, this is, Again. Has your songwriting changed much over the years? I don't perceive it. But maybe I don't know. Um, I just go with what appeals and wherever it takes me. So, um, I don't perceive it to have changed. Do you look at your body of work and feel quite surprised? Thank God, if my ten-year-olds could see what I went on and did in my adult life, they would be amazed. I, I, I was shocked. I remember when I got all. Like when Facebook first came up, I thought, right, ego, I'll get all my records out and everything I've been involved with. And I couldn't take a picture of it all because it was too much. It was like, wow, I've done <laughs> a lot. Wow, there's a lot of shit I've done now. Um, yeah, I tend to sort of like not really think about it until someone goes, yeah, but you've got so many songs. Like, Have we? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh. Um, I just carry on with the songs I'm only ever thinking about the new songs. That's all I'm thinking about. I don't, I did, it did come to mind when um, I first started doing acoustic stuff. Um, Cause I never had an acoustic guitar apart from when I was a little kid with my mum's six string Spanish, but that, um, that broke when I was little. And after that, I only ever had an electric guitar. So I never had an acoustic until 2006 or something like that. Yes. Um, that was the first time I'd actually played properly a, a proper acoustic. And like, oh, it's a new thing. What's What songs work? And I did go back through all the snuff songs thinking, right, that'll work. Tried it and went, 
hmm, that doesn't work, actually. I thought it would. So that did make me realise oh, there's, there's a lot of songs here. Wow. When I looked, got all the albums out, I went, oh, well, I forgot about that one. Oh, and that one. Oh, there's another album. Oh, and that and that. And all the covers and different projects, Divas, Bibi No Mates, whatever. But, oh, there's an awful lot of stuff here. Wow. But not all of it translates to acoustic. It's, it's um, some do, some don't. You know, some seem obvious acoustic. It's like, well, yeah, but it doesn't. Um, and then some you think, well, that won't work. And you try it. And, oh, oh, it does. That's nice. Yes. Um, so that, and definitely again, when we, like the last album, Crepuscolo Dorato, et cetera, et cetera, when we did that and then had all the spare time, um, it was like, right, let's do some acoustic. And then it was, again, looking back through it, it was like, bloody hell, there's hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> there's loads of them. Wow. Um, so, yeah, no, there's a, I just look at the new songs and that's all I really concentrate on is what's, what's coming up. What I'm yes. Working on. I think Rob Lloyd from the Nightingales does the same. He only likes focusing on the latest couple of albums, mainly because he sort of finds it hard to remember how to play the early stuff. <laughs> well, it's, it's the, I don't forget how to play the stuff. Um, but if you've played it a lot, it gets boring. If it, yes. if it loses, if it loses the spark, I don't want to be just sitting there. I, I consider it like, well, I'll, I'll do the buttling circuit if you just want the hits. Plus, we never had a hit, but you know what I mean? The, <laughs> the the songs that everyone wants. It's like, well, for you, maybe, but for me, sorry, I got bored shitless of that song 25 years ago. And I'm yes. not going to go on stage and just play boring stuff. It's got to be relevant. It's got to feel good. It's So, and, and then you add to that, um, different musical chemistry. I mean, the original three piece, the musical chemistry was incredible. One is, well, it's a different thing. So, um, I've had it with Billy No Mates, I've had it with the Divas, where I've, um, one song, you can play it with different groups, different groups of people. And even though it might be the simplest song in the world, somehow it works with one group, it doesn't work with the other. And you can't, quite put your finger on why the chemistry isn't working it's sort of like mm, okay that's not really working in this and it's one chord all the way through and i'm just going la 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 why is it not you know it's a joke but yeah no it's it's, it's, it's songs quite... work with different chemistry and and doesn't translate to other chemistries so but okay oh that one's not working don't know why never mind let's do something else so, I mean, what's kind of interesting, because I often wonder about that, you know, like, I suppose in football, you know, you have a striker, then you have to get another striker. You have Paul, Trevor Weimark, and then you have Paul Marino, and you think that kind of works. But then in music, you know, you think, okay, like you two have got this big tour, but the drummers can't do it because he's got an operation, he's recovering, so they're going to have to get another drummer. So say theoretically, you know, you two came to you and said, look, we really need you to stand in. Here's a few million. You think, mm, let me think about that. Okay. Would you be able to then go, right, just give me a set list. Would you be able to replicate that drummer's style to make it sound like you too? Um, I like to think I could, but I probably couldn't because it's a different chemistry. Um, I Well, I, I had this with the Toy Dolls. Coming into the Toy Dolls, I, I, I tried to fit to the Toy Dolls. Um, really wasn't as easy as, as I thought. It was a... I wanted to 
play more my style whilst realising it's not my style. It's Toy Dolls. It's a different style. Be mm-hmm. Toy Dolls. Be Toy Dolls. Um, it did show me that it was much harder than I thought. Um, so as much as I like to think I could step into the U2 shoes, I'd have to try it and see. And I'm guessing <laughs> it probably wouldn't work because I would... Um, I don't know. I don't. I'd like to think it could, but in reality, um, I would be skeptical, thinking, "Hmm, I don't know if that will or not." And then yeah. you got the whole thing of, "Yeah, but it's not." I've, I've forgotten the drummer from U2's name, but people think... want to see their musicians. They want to see. They don't want to see the Rolling Stones without Bill Wyman or whatever. You know, the sort. A lot of people will just go, "I don't care." It's still Mick Jagger and um, yeah. Keith Richards. That's cool. Other people will go, mm, "That's not my band anymore. It's not." And I can understand all that as well. I've, I've had that with bands that I used to love and they've changed members and it's like, not my band anymore sort of thing. So, I mean, I also get that with Snuff. Some people love the original three-piece and that's it. That's all they like. Some people carry on all the way through. Some people came in with the present lineup and that's their lineup and they don't like the old lineup. It's like, really? Okay. Each <laughs> to their own. Um, I'm used to the fact that different people will have different different takes on it yes. um, but other way i like to think i could do the youtube two job and to be honest if they said here's here's a few million i would definitely try it <laughs> <laughs> yes. any any morals would fly out no i definitely can't do that you could I'm live just, with that you could live oh, with that. Could... I, yeah i can do that <laughs> <laughs> i've always loved your material <laughs> always been a big yeah, fan. <laughs> i've always been a big youtube fan yeah yeah oh, i'm a christian now as well yeah let's go to church Yes. <laughs> so just, I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like 16 year old self starting out with all these experiences, is there anything like, you know, with your kids, say, if you could have whispered anything to them or yourself when you were 16, is with all this kind of life experience as, you've had? As, is there, if a, as if a 16 year old is going to listen to anything. I know, else. I know, this is true. It's been pointless. I could say it, everything and I would just ignore it. Because I would be a 16-year-old with the whole world ahead of me and I would know exactly what's right and exactly what's wrong yeah. and wouldn't be told. Um, if there, But uh, is there something? Um, I don't know. It's a tricky one because um, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have listened anyway. No, this is true, actually. You've got to make so, your mistakes, haven't you, to learn? Yeah. What would I I'm sure there is, if I think about this for a long time, I'm sure there's stuff I would say, like financially, beware of that, emotionally, beware of that, um, watch out for the drugs and the booze and um, uh, don't burn yourself out, don't don't put up with stuff trying to make it better than when it's, you're not going to be able to change stuff. Just, just actually get out quicker. <laughs> don't, yeah. Toxicity and stuff like that. I would have wanted to change it and try and make it right. When in fact, sometimes you just can't make it right and just accept that and don't bang your head against the wall, trying to change something that you can't change. Yes. I think we get better at that as we get older. It takes age to know, yeah. Them, I mean, like I said, a sixteen-year-old. As if I would listen to anyone anyway. It would, it would, I'm doing what I want to do. Fuck off! I know what's right. 
This is true. Whether it, whether it was right or wrong, it was right for what I did. So, um, yes, I know. I know. Sixteen. Well, um, I would say, yeah, go and buy loads of Northern Soul records now because you can, you know, they're they're going to be four hundred quid, four thousand pounds, ten thousand pounds by now when I want them <laughs> more. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I remember, well, first job, I was thinking about it the other day. I sold a load of old vinyl that I don't play. And I thought, well, what's the point in having it? I don't play it. Um, I've kept everything that's got a memory. I've kept all the stuff that is solid. And some stuff I thought, well, I, I, well, I worked in warehouses for a few years. Um, and lots of the demos would come through. And, yeah. you know, white labels. And I would keep the Huskadoo white labels and a couple of old Smiths white labels and stuff like that. But the rest of it was like, no, I don't like it. I won't play it. Um, I, no, I don't want it. I would go back and go, keep every single fucking white label you can get your hands on. And remember that pile of Clash posters? Don't just take two. Take the fucking lot because they're worth fucking 70 quid each now or whatever. So, yeah, stuff like that. And I remember... I would go back to my 17 year old self and say, remember that second hand record, that second hand shop on the Cricketwood Broadway, go in and buy the whole, whole tray of seven inches because they, I remember they were 17 pence each and it was all this old reggae stuff, Rocksteady and Scar from the sixties to the then early eighties. Yes. And I, I, I remember I was on the dole at, at first and I couldn't afford to buy much. And they, uh, it was 17 pence each or six for a quid or whatever it was. And I remember buying a couple of pounds worth. I'd go back and buy the lot now. Oh, my word. Some of the stuff. I just, if yeah, all this old skinhead reggae, rock steady, all this stuff is like, wow, I'd, I'd have the lot. I'd go back and say, buy the lot, buy the lot. Go and borrow some money and buy <laughs> the lot. And get all of them clash posters and keep every single promo that you get can get your hands on because there'll be, there'll be stuff that was coming through like... Africa Bambata and I mean I would keep stuff like hip hop I got into all that electro when that kicked off I would keep lots of that I'd keep it all now yes. some of that is worth so you, did you money. get into that Street Sounds label that had um, I did yeah, Morgan I did. Khan yes yeah I did I mean yeah I was in uh, I'd go out and see lots of that stuff um, go to warehouse parties which then became like raves later um, yeah, no, I was into that because I'd, I'd started getting fascinated. Where I worked, it was all, um, at one point, I was on the 12-inch department. So I, part of my job was listening to all the new 12-inch releases. Well, I remember like street sound stuff coming in. It's like, oh, oh, that's working. Yeah, I'd have some of that. Um, there was the compilation albums I'd get as well. Um, I used to get, yeah. Africa Bambata, Soul Sonic Force, 12 inches. Planet Rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Planet Rock. Excellent. There's some great stuff. I, I was, yeah, and I'd go to the clubs. Um, I think African Bambata did an, uh, a track with um, James Brown, didn't he, as well? I think there was, and Johnny Lydon as well. Uh, that didn't work so much. but the James It didn't Brown. work so much. I'm trying to remember what that was, but yeah. There was, yeah, and I got also got into all the, the acid house stuff as well when that came out that seemed like a logical step from the techno stuff and i, I remember like the man parish hip-hop bebop and 
um, future looking looking for the perfect beat and all this sort of stuff. Um, oh yes. So that was, was yeah, yes. It was a logical step to then go into the acid house. Um, yes, I, I got into that. That was that was all well and good. Often I was the only sober one. Not all, <laughs> not always. I would say not always. But I remember my mates; they would be on acid and ecstasy. I couldn't afford ecstasy then. It was like that was way out of my price range. I could afford a microdot, but I couldn't afford it. <laughs> but often I didn't. I just went dancing anyway. I didn't, and I'd be the sober one, and they'd be all on coming down off their drugs, going, "Can we go? Can we go?" It's like, and I'm completely sober. Going, what do you mean go? This is great. What are you talking about? Yeah, I'm, I'm the I'm the completely sober one here, which is rare. Got to be honest, but <laughs> yeah, no, I was into all that. And I loved yes. it when it started crossing over into what I call became jungle. When it started crossing over, they'd get some old reggae beats, speed them up a bit. And, and that was that was a great period. And then I, jungle lost me. I didn't didn't get jungle. It, the odd track, but that was I kind of left it there. It was mm-hmm. didn't uh, techno and stuff. Yeah, techno acid house. I was I was down with that. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. We, you know, the first time you heard a guy called Gerald Voodoo Child was uh, Voodoo Ray. That was a classic. Yeah, there was some stomping stuff, and also it was a bit dangerous. I say dangerous, meaning that you didn't know. You know, you had to find out where it was, and you had to go and hang about, walking around, just listening, trying to hear the sub bass somewhere. It's like, where is it? Where's the rave? Yes. Where is it? Walking around, you know, warehouses in East London, whatever. Oh, it's around here somewhere. I can hear it. I can hear it. <laughs> and then, then you'd get in and go right and it was underground and illegal and there'd be a one of the few times where it was like a completely across the board racial mix that was brilliant that was it was a i mean two-tone kind of did that but then acid house definitely did that it, did, it, was, it, it did. was you left all your politics at the door and it was black white asian everything it was brilliant and even Millwall fans calmed down, yeah. didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And I saw all the football fans started taking E and then loving up, getting loved up and loving each other. It was like brilliant. Football hooliganism ended for a couple of years until Charlie came onto the scene. And then Charlie just turned everyone into moody bastards. So it all went back to fighting. But there was a little period, that summer of love. It was like, <laughs> wow, football hooligans going, oh, I love you. Yes. Whoa, that's better. That's, that's better. I know this is good, actually. Well, look, Duncan, thank you, thank you ever so much. This has been amazing, actually. Um, Ipswich Town, though, Bobby Robson's Blue and White Army. We love them. Bobby Robson's Blue and White Army. Yeah. North, did you days. go? Did you go to the North End or Churchill? I was. I was Churchman's. I was that's the Churchman's. Yeah. yeah, that was my spot. And early on, I used to take a bucket, stand on a bucket, so I could see. I used to, my my dad would push me to the front and have a little shoebox or something. No, he made a little wooden thing and he just pushed me to the front. And he's he, it was like <laughs> now I look back on it, you know, because we, you know, it was like fuck, you know, because that was so, so, you know sold out audiences and I would sort of just get to yeah. the front and he would then disappear. Also, also back then I took it for granted. I thought all football clubs were that good. I just thought, well, this is just football. Yes. I look back, the football that Ipswich were playing was amazing. Amazing. And I was spoilt. I just thought, well, everyone plays like this, don't they? No. But no, then, it was good times. And that I was do remember a few times on the terraces, like because it was all terraces pretty much then, wasn't it? There was seating in the West Stand and um, East Stand, but then there was terraces around the front and north and Churchman's was all 
There'll be times, you know, knees up Mother Brown would start up or whatever, and I'm going to be bouncing down the terraces on me bucket. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hang on. I've got to pick that up. Go back yes. Yeah, that glory was... days. They were glory days. Anyway, look, all the best for this album and your live date next week. Thank and, you very um, much. And I'll send this on to you. Well, I can give you the link for your web, uh, your Facebook page or website. And um, yes, this has been amazing. So look, thanks again for, for such great music. This is all good. Well, thank you very much, sir. Yes, take care. <laughs> <laughs> thanks ever so much. Nice see, one. See you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See ya. And that, dear listener... If you're still with us, it's the end of the interview. You probably gathered. Anyway, a massive, massive thank you to Duncan Redmond's for giving me the time for that. And as I said, I'll give you the link of their website below in the notes. Uh, this has been the C86 date show, David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 show. All these um, interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.